Good evening and welcome to Resistance TV. It's Wednesday the 11th of August and it's 7pm and tonight we've got our seventh edition of The Elephant in the Room um, with our resident academic Rod Driver. Um, tonight is going to be talking about um, the media and the main purpose of the media in Britain and the US is to present information in a misleading way to make people accept the existing economic and military systems. The ownership and the control of the media by governments and big companies filters out dissenting views. It limits the range of acceptable opinion whilst pretending to allow lively debates. So um, Rod, good evening. And what are your thoughts on the dissenting um, opinions in the media? Uh, well, I think we need a lot more. So um, uh, I'll uh, I'll talk tonight for about half an hour, and I'll uh, I'll the first half is a kind of theoretical introduction, uh, and then we'll talk in the second half a bit more about uh, how that actually kind of plays out in uh, in practice. And in fact, the, the famous writer George Orwell, who wrote the book 1984, which was very much about propaganda, once said. The sinister fact about literary censorship in England is that it is largely voluntary. Unpopular ideas can be silenced and inconvenient facts kept dark without any need for an official ban. And I think that's an, an outstanding sort of summary of what actually uh, goes on. So uh, you'll anybody who kind of thinks about what they see in the media and what actually goes on in the real world. So, for example, when Britain and America are invading other countries, they'll be aware that there's never any real discussion of how Britain and America slaughter huge numbers of people in foreign countries. So a lot of the time, what we get are not necessarily lies, there are, there are definitely some lies, but most of it is not lies, it's distorted information. And there was a very famous book written in 1988 uh, by uh, two writers, Edward Herman and Noam Chomsky. Some of you might have heard of uh, Noam Chomsky where they introduced what they called the propaganda model. So the book was called Manufacturing Consent. And they explained that the way the media is structured tends to filter out um, views that uh, elites and the establishment don't, don't really like. So what they consider undesirable views. So anything that challenges the interests of powerful people or organizations. So I'm going to talk about those five filters to start with. So the first is ownership. So most of the media is owned by very, very big companies or by governments. And power rests with a very small number of people at the top of each organization. Journalists can be hired and fired. And what we find is that people with views that challenge the mainstream tend not to get promoted. Often they don't even get employed in the first place. Uh, and we'll talk about specific examples of that later on. So there was a great example in relation to the Iraq war in 2003, where a presenter on the US channel NBC called Phil Donahue was critical of the Iraq war, and he was fired soon afterwards. And the company that owns NSNBC is General Electric, and they're the biggest, one of the biggest weapons companies in the world. And they are not happy with uh, anyone criticizing uh, the war and American foreign policy. So ownership makes uh, a big difference. So the second filter is advertising. And so big advertisers, such as BP and Morgan Stanley, have actually admitted that they will not advertise with what they call objectionable, I'll say that again, objectionable publications. So that means any publication that questions their right to make unlimited profits or questions the way that they do business. So actually what advertisers want is stories that make readers receptive to the ads. So you have to understand that for most newspapers and for most of the privately owned broadcasters, most of their income comes from advertising. If they don't keep their advertisers happy, they go out of business. And you'll realize, say, in the local press, that the editorial is actually a tiny part of the newspaper. And it tends to sort of fill small spaces between the advertisements. And you'll see more and more these days, you see um, what is labeled 
an advert or an advertorial where it's um, it's not clear whether it's an advert or it's actually written by journalists. And the idea is to make it very confusing as to what people are actually reading. So the third filter is known as sourcing. That is, where does a journalist's information come from? What you discover is that about 80% of newspaper coverage and broadcaster output in the um, news and current affairs is government or corporate press releases. So it's PR or it's spin. And so all of those press releases have some either pro-government bias or pro-corporate bias, depending on who they're uh, released by. Now, journalists and newspapers and broadcasters don't want to be what we call shut out by these important sources. If a government says, we're not going to give interviews to this organization or we're not going to allow journalists from this organization to come to the press conferences given, say, by the government, then the newspaper loses access. And newspapers and broadcasters don't want to risk that. So they don't want to upset their main sources. So in fact, more and more these days, what we see as news and current affairs is really material that is spoon-fed to journalists. So in fact, politics and journalism are no longer separate. In the past, journalism used to be called the fourth estate. It was meant to be a sort of separate, independent group of people who are holding politicians and powerful people to account and asking difficult questions. That is happening less and less. And so, for example, you see actually a lot of video footage that you might see on television or the internet these days is actually provided by public relations companies who are working for companies and governments and so on. And also you'll see experts or supposed experts, many again of whom are supplied by the government or by corporations, and they will always have a, a bias. So the fourth one, the fourth filter is known as flack. Now this is related to sourcing. So if, um, a powerful organization doesn't like what the media are saying, they can give broadcasters a very, very hard time. So they can just make phone calls, they can write letters. In Britain, the threat of legal action is quite effective. And uh, some people will remember, let's say, the dodgy dossier, which was uh, this uh, intelligence information that was used to justify the invasion of Iraq. And there was some critique of that by the BBC and people lost their jobs. And an American presenter called Dan Rather on the uh, the main channel CBS has admitted that when they have stories, and there was one in particular that was about George Bush Jr. being in a safe unit when he did his national service, that story was dropped because of pressure from the government. So governments and companies can keep criticism within very, very limited bounds by giving broadcasters that stray outside of those bounds a hard time. And the final filter is what's known as ideology. What do broadcasters, journalists, and so on, what do they actually believe? And what you suddenly realize when you start to talk to these people is they actually have a very similar narrow mindset in terms of understanding the world. So there are certain dominant ideologies that, uh, that we see all the time. So in recent years, there have been two things that have really dominated. One is about anti-terrorism. Uh, the, the whole mainstream media system buys into the need to fight aggressively about terrorism. And to, even if terrorism is being used as a justification for a war, they will go along with it. But they also buy into the system of capitalism that we have now. And although the system of capitalism that's been developing over the last few years is a really extreme system where inequality increases, companies get away with more and more unethical behavior and more crimes, the media will rarely challenge it. So uh, of the two authors, Noam Chomsky has pointed out that in his opinion, of all the filters, by far the most important is ideology. What do journalists believe? And the reason he said this is because if you look at academics, they don't have the other four filters. They don't have to worry about advertising and so on. But in fact, academics have almost as bad a track record in terms of how they, let's say, teach economics 
uh, as the uh, as the broadcasters. So in fact, the, the ideology, the belief system is incredibly important in terms of what gets written about academically and in terms of what gets broadcast. Now, there's a particularly uh, interesting interview some years ago with Andrew Marr, the TV presenter, uh, interviewing Noam Chomsky. And Marr thought that what Noam Chomsky was saying is that journalists self-censor. And Noam Chomsky said, no, I'm not saying that you self-censor. You don't need to, or the system doesn't require that you self-censor. What Chomsky was saying was that if Marr believed anything other than what he believes, he wouldn't be in the job. And I think this is quite a good description of how part of the system works, that in fact, people who have critical views tend not to be recruited in the first place. And we'll talk a little bit more about this as we go. And in fact, um, a British journalist called Matt Kennard, who does some outstanding work um, at Declassified UK, he's actually written about his experiences when he was in journalism school. And uh, they had a, a guest presentation by Henry Kissinger. Now, for people who don't know, Henry Kissinger is one of the most insane war criminals in history. Uh, and Matt Kennard tried to ask some challenging questions to Henry Kissinger, but nobody else would sort of support him in this line of questioning. Everybody else wanted to sort of worship Kissinger and not ask the difficult questions. So there's even censorship or su subconscious self-censorship, shall we call it, in um, even in journalism school and so on. And we see it in recruitment uh, and we see it in the system of promotion where people understand that in order to get promoted, they have to be very careful about how critical they are. Now, there's another very good writer in America called Michael Parenti. People are probably less likely to have heard of him. He's slightly less famous than Noam Chomsky. But actually, what he says most of the time is very simpler. Uh, sorry, is very similar. And he often writes in a way that's actually much easier for ordinary people to understand. And he interviewed the head of the American Federal Communications Commission who gave him this amazing quote, who said that there are four stages that journalists go through. And I'm going to read out the text. It's, it's only a, a sort of about a minute long. In the early stage, you're a young crusader. And you write an expose story about the powers that be. And you bring it to your editor and the editor says, no, kill it. We can't touch that. It's too hot. Stage two, you get an idea for the story, but you don't write it. You check with the editor first and he says, no, it won't fly. I don't think the old man will like it. Don't do that. He's got lots of friends and it might get messy. Stage three, you get an idea for the story, but you yourself dismiss it. You realize that it's not going to be accepted. And stage four, you no longer get the idea for that kind of an expose story. So by that point, you've got to the point where you're not even consciously self-censoring. Any censorship is happening at a subconscious level. You're not even aware that you're doing it. And in fact, Michael Parenti said, in his opinion, there's actually a fifth stage. And that is where journalists will appear in debates and they will aggressively challenge anyone who says there is any form of censorship in the media. Because it's now operating at such a subconscious level, they're they've bamboozled themselves. They have no idea that they're doing it at all. And I think that's a very interesting stage five. So, so this, this business about journalists either self-censoring, which some of them definitely do on a conscious level. The senior people in some organizations definitely know that you don't say the wrong things about the government, you don't criticize war, you don't criticize certain angles of capitalism and so on, and, and they, they fully understand how the system works. So there are other aspects to the system as well. So uh, sometimes I've talked about what's called a revolving door where people from business go into uh, government. And here we have something similar where people from government end up in senior roles in journalism. So the former Chancellor George Osborne went to the Evening Standard. And in the past, Boris Johnson was the editor of The Spectator. So there is a very, very close relationship between senior levels of journalism and the, the role of government. And so as you can understand, these organizations will see the world in the same way that the government does. 
Okay, so it's important to understand that this idea of a filtering system is only partial. If you had a system that worked perfectly and you never got any dissenting views, people would actually start to question that. But in fact, some critical views do get through occasionally, and they're they tend not to be too uh, too critical, but the very fact that there are these occasional critical opinions misleads viewers into believing that the system is more honest than it uh, than it really is. Um, so, if you talk to uh, journalists themselves and insiders in the system about what are the problems with the media, one or two of them have written books on it, which are quite interesting, and they will sort of touch upon some of these things, but they will tend to focus on the pressures of funding and the pressures of tight deadlines and so on. But in fact, what I'm talking about and what Noam Chomsky was writing about is the fact that actually the, the media has always been terrible. And even when it was well-funded and journalists did have the time to go and do serious investigative journalism, most of the time it still was very, very poor quality. And so there were some very senior journalists in Britain, so experienced journalists, so John Pilger, Matt Kennard, Jonathan Cook, and someone else called Nafis Ahmed that some people might have heard of. They've all done outstanding journalism. They, they've all described different types of censorship when they try to write uh, for mainstream uh, media. So there's, there's two other things that I want to mention on the sort of theoretical side. One is what's called groupthink, where um, you, journalists are surrounded by other people with similar views, and they always never hear the questioning views. And if they hear a statement of a politician, they will consider that to be good evidence that something is true. Whereas any ordinary member of the public knows that statements by politicians cannot be trusted, uh, that they, they don't serve a purpose as evidence at all. They're just something that politicians want us to believe. And then the other thing it, that exists is what George Orwell, again, the person who I quoted at the beginning, wrote about in 1984, which is called the memory hole, which is where journalists seem to forget all the crimes and unethical acts that governments or big companies have committed in the past. So if you look at the crimes of the American government, and we're going to talk about those in a lot of detail in a future um, future session, uh, there's a huge list of wars, invasions, occupations, mass murder, overthrowing governments, and so on. And journalists just seem to forget all of those and come right back to their assumption that Britain and America have good intentions in their foreign policy. So they, they, they conveniently forget. Okay, so let's let's talk about this a little bit more in practice. And uh, when I was researching this, I came across an outstanding John Pilger quote, where some Russian journalists were actually visiting Britain many years ago, and they said, "We don't understand how your government gets the media to repeat propaganda without question. In our country, we have to tear fingernails out to get this level of cooperation." So that's that's very similar to what uh, George Orwell. Uh, had written about so many years uh, earlier. So what happens in practice, the most important form of sort of uh, media um, bias, which is something I've talked about in the past in relation to propaganda in general, is called censorship by omission. So many of the most important things are simply not discussed. So if we take a situation like uh, what's going on in Venezuela, some of you will remember that a year or two ago, America and Britain talking very actively about having to do something in Venezuela, that things were, things were not um, uh, in a good situation there, and they're saying we have to do something, and they were encouraging the overthrow of the government, basically. And all the mainstream media coverage ignored the history of plunder uh, by Britain and America uh, in South and Central American countries, particularly by America, but also ignored the history of plunder by elites in Venezuela when the country was run in the past by the very rich. It also ignored the positive achievements of left-wing governments, again in Venezuela, but also more widely in South and Central America in recent years. They ignored the role of American sanctions in destabilizing uh, the country. And in a future week, we'll talk in detail about the negative effect of sanctions in, in many countries. It all the mainstream media also ignored the history of US-backed dictatorship and 
U.S. support for dictators in South America. Sorry. They ignored the role of the U.S. backing dictators in South and Central America, and they ignored the more general role of Britain and America with their imperialism. So all of these are ignored and missing out from mainstream criticism, mainstream coverage. So if we look at what some people think is serious debate in the media, what we see is there are endless stories about political maneuvers, about the character of politicians, that this person said this about some, somebody else and another person said this about somebody else. And so it looks like you're having great debate, great political debate, great coverage by journalists who are interviewing all these different politicians who are saying all these different things about each other. But in fact, what's going on is they're talking about really trivial things and they're ignoring what matters. So as Noam Chomsky said, the aim is to limit the spectrum of acceptable opinion, but allow very lively debate within that spectrum. So if you look at, say, uh, a recent example, Russiagate is, is a great example of mainstream media failures. The government and the media together hyped up this huge Russiagate thing. Oh, they're hacking into uh, elections and distorting elections in America. And they're doing all these terrible things. And of course, when they're doing that, firstly, they're not examining the evidence in any real detail. So if Russia did get involved in manipulating any elections in America, the extent to which it did so was very, very small. But they completely forget to mention the fact that the American intelligence services, the CIA, have very, very actively uh, in, interfered in at least 81 elections in foreign countries. So in fact, America's uh, intervention in terms of undermining democracy is greater than all other countries um, put together. And um, a, an example closer to home, the media hyped up the Labour anti-Semitism story enormously uh, over the last few years, when in fact the forms of racism that really make a practical difference to people living in Britain would be racism against Arabs and racism against black and brown people and so on. But of course, none of this is, is mentioned or barely mentioned at all. And then other things like corporate crime, it gets mentioned as a one-off. They'll mention a particular company has done something wrong, but they'll never criticize the system. And similarly, if you look at, say, torture in Iraq at Abu Ghraib, they'll talk about how low-ranking people at Abu Ghraib should be punished. And they'll say, you know, these individuals were just a handful of bad apples. They won't say, look, this torture is part of the system. The orders are coming from the top and we should be prosecuting the people at the top. So they pretend to do honest media, but it's always a distortion by leaving out the more important parts of the story. So if we look at how bias works in um, uh, mainstream media coverage in Britain, the mainstream media's view of what they call balance or being unbiased is to say that if you have a politician from the Conservative Party and a politician from the Labour Party, then that's balance. But of course, if both parties are dominated by extremist right wingers, as is the case at the moment, then actually you just get two very similar views and you don't really have a very critical view on at all. So. Whenever academics have analysed media coverage, say, of war, so there's been a lot of studies of the Iraq war, it turned out that the BBC's coverage, approximately 98% of guests were pro-war and only 2% were actually critical of war. So in fact, their coverage was worse than even the American channels that were analysed. And... Wherever there was criticism of the Iraq war, it was always along the lines of, well, we didn't plan it carefully enough, or we didn't send the right numbers of troops, or we didn't find what success would be. We didn't decide what the exit strategy would be. There is almost never anyone saying, well, this is a war crime. We're the bad guys. You know, this shouldn't be happening at all. So that, that range of views is just sort of missing. So the question you have to ask whenever you see coverage, say, of a war, is how would this war be covered 
if Russia or China were doing what Britain and America were doing. So if Russia or China destroyed Libya, every single journalist in the country would be screaming from the rooftops that this is a monstrous crime. But when Britain and America do the same crime, actually it ceases to be a crime at all. And it isn't that journalists don't mention it. They, they talked about the invasion of Libya quite a lot, but they actually presented it as a good thing. And so they completely invert what's really going on. So there's no serious challenge to the, uh, the main government's uh, narrative. And Libya was quite interesting because after the 2003 invasion of Iraq, many journalists admitted they self-censored and they said that they would do better in future. But in fact, by the time we got to Libya in 2011, it was even worse. They were even more self-censoring. So coverage is not actually improving, it's getting worse. So um, one of the things we see occasionally on, um, on mainstream news is a discussion about what's called fake news. Now, I've probably mentioned this in the past. When the mainstream media talk about fake news, they're trying to pretend that what's on the internet is, is, uh, is not true. And there's an implication that what the mainstream media broadcast is the honest, correct news. Nothing could be further from the truth. So I think I've said before, the internet carries every range of views possible. Much of it replicates the mainstream. Some of it is kind of uh, men on Mars, uh, the earth is run by lizards type stuff, really extreme stuff. But the very, very best news is on the internet, far better than the mainstream, but you have to know where to look, which is why I've sort of written various beginner's guides to help people sort of try to find reasonable sources of good critical uh, news. Now, one of the other things that we've seen going on recently is that honest voices, really honest voices are being targeted. So people will have heard that Julian Assange is still in prison. There was a hearing today where um, there were discussions about um, uh, the appeal in relation to his case. And in a future week, we might discuss that in a bit more detail. Craig Murray, who's a very, very powerful critic of the British and Scottish governments, has uh, recently gone to jail uh, on an astonishingly um, trivial uh, case. And again, um, uh, we might discuss that in a future week. And Australian journalists have been targeted as well for pointing out the war crimes of the Australian uh, military. So honest voices are very deliberately targeted by the government and the media work with them to destroy those people. So they will smear people like Julian Assange. So they will carry fake stories. So for example, they said that he was charged in Sweden. But in fact, Julian Assange was never charged with any offense in Sweden. There was a preliminary investigation but he was never charged with an offence. So the, the mainstream media deliberately misrepresented this. And in fact, the BBC did this over and over again. And despite people writing to them many times to say, look, what you've said is wrong, uh, they, they have not, um, not changed it, never apologised, never withdrawn it, and so on. So what you have to understand is what you see on the internet is not simply just a different opinion from the mainstream media. The world is not just made up of opinions. There is actually such a thing as evidence. What you discover is that the views that the mainstream media put out are often evidence-free. It is simply the statement of a politician. So, uh, so for example, uh, when the mainstream media are broadcasting, they'll show images of war as being simply laser-guided bombs always hitting their targets and they'll present injured or dead soldiers as heroes. They never say that our soldiers are trained killers who died because they invaded somebody else's country. They never cover the scale of death and destruction. They never interview soldiers who've become critical of war who say, hey, our wars are nothing but the bodies of women and children everywhere, and things like this. These points of view are entirely missing. So, to sort of summarize what we get in practice in the media, there's no exploration of complex issues, no uh, context to any topic that's talked about. It's always done very simplistically. 
There's no critical analysis of the true role of our media. There's no serious critique of the corporate system. And there's no questioning of the incorrect assumption that our governments and corporations are benign or benevolent. So if we take the, the first of those, no exploration of uh, complex issues. If you take it, a situation like immigration, you'll see lots of um, programs, lots of news reports about immigration. And it will start at our borders. It will be, oh, these people have arrived in Dover. What do we do with them? Do we build a camp? Do we do this? Do we that? Right? They never go back a stage and say, well, why did those people want to leave their country? And then they need to go back another stage and say, well, what did Britain do in its foreign policy that made life so difficult in their home country? Because actually, when you study immigration, you realize the vast majority of people would rather live in a country where they, their friends and family live, where they understand the culture and so on. They don't, most of them don't want to leave their country. They do so because they feel they have no opportunities in that country. And we have to talk about what we do in our foreign policies that brings that about. But of course, all of this is missing from the mainstream uh, media. Now, there's one final point that I'll get onto just before we, uh, we sort of wrap up the, uh, the initial presentation and do some Q&A and some discussion. However bad you think the situation is, and this applies to both the media and the government and their crimes and so on, the reality tends to be even worse than you realize. So the BBC have admitted that in the past, MI5, the security services, used to vet their employees. So nobody with really critical views of the establishment would get certainly senior roles within the BBC. And we know from insiders in the CIA and other insiders in American journalism that the CIA employed many people in major news organizations, not just in America, but in other countries as well. Now, of course, the, the intelligence agencies and the governments of these countries of Britain and America claim that this doesn't go on. But actually, there's always on a fairly regular basis, another insider coming forward saying, well, actually, yes. We, there was some censorship or there was some uh, intelligence agency involvement in who was recruited, who was promoted, who was uh, allowed to say what, who had access to what, and so on. And we know, again, from whistleblowers, that intelligence stories are still being planted in the press by journalists who are happy to work with intelligence agencies just planting fake stories. So the situation is probably worse than um, we realise, but we never know that at any given moment in time, it's very difficult to know the full extent of intelligence agency and government involvement within the media and within uh, broadcasting. Okay, so that's, that's probably a good time to uh, stop the initial uh, conversation. So if uh, Sean or any of the other uh, people are available, then uh, we can have a discussion or do uh, do a Q&A. Hi, everybody. Hi, hi Rod. Um, yeah, that was really interesting. Um, there's a, a few points um, that I wanted to pick up on. Um, I was talking to Max Blumenthal a, a couple of um, months ago. Uh, as you know, he's a, a, a great journalist who's based in Washington, D.C., and he has his own uh, website called The Grey Zone, and he's he's been a guest on here several times. And Max said that our Ministry of Defence hold meetings with our journalists every morning and they will tell them what they can and cannot print. Um, they quite often use a D-notice um, for information that they don't want to go out to the public. I wondered if you could explain to people what a D-notice is and why our government would use such a thing within our so-called free press? Well, so I'm not an expert on the D-notice uh, system, but uh, it's meant to be, uh, in theory, it's meant to be an advisory system where the government says we would advise that you follow uh, kind of these ideas when talking about this subject and you don't talk about something and so on. And the idea is it's meant to, in theory, it's meant to be about national security issues primarily. Um, 
to uh, make sure that coverage of military operations is um, kept within certain certain bounds. Uh, now, I wasn't aware that they had these meetings every morning. That's very interesting. I still have to have a chat with him and find a bit more about this. And it does appear, as far as we can tell, that newspapers that in the past, let's say newspapers that worked with Julian Assange in uh, 2010, putting out the material on Iraq and Afghanistan about American war crimes, those newspapers were encouraged to um, to work with the denotice committee a bit more closely. And I believe that a very senior person from The Guardian is now part of the denotice committee. So it, to, to my way of thinking, that's a suggestion that whatever critical uh, output was happening 10 years ago in relation to British and American foreign policy and war crimes, that has now been silenced. And uh, I, I think instead of it being an advisory system, I suspect that it is now seen as an absolute, you cannot talk about these things type of system in that the amount of critical reporting on certain topics, so on military topics, on let's say Julian Assange and so on, they, the uniformity of coverage by the mainstream media has been very, very clear. That you know, it's been a very narrow set of opinions, all very much what the government wants to hear, and very, very little dissent. So I, I think, uh, although I, I, I've never seen the inner workings of it, and very few people have told us anything about the inner workings of it, but it's probably a fairly rigid system um now but it, it would be very interesting to find out where max got his information from and uh if we could talk to him at some point in the future in a bit more detail that would be great yeah i'm Everybody sure we can arrange that and um, the, the other the other thing is the uh, we have press agencies don't we we have the press agencies such as the press association and reuters do we know who owns those corporations lizzie you're you're um part of the independent media you'd probably have an idea of of how those press associate or the the press agencies work uh yes i do and uh i, I was just going to ask rod if he would explain what a d notice is in more detail but he didn't know <laughs> he wanted to talk to max about it and uh, uh, uh the the news agencies, the Associated Press and Reuters, are a global, a global business of uh, of putting news out. So it will be chosen by the very people that Rod described at the beginning of the program, the people who have already been vetted thoroughly, into, and they will not be in those jobs unless they hold those beliefs that are applicable to the government, the state machine turning, the big brother machine turning. If um, I personally have uh, totally experienced everything that Rod said, you know, my first articles went to the editor and the editor said, I didn't want you to write it in uh, about how it's going to affect local people, that bypass. I wanted you to write it about how the bypass is going to be brilliant for transport networks from now on you know so and the thing is with a d notice it, it is an advisory and um but craig murray's in prison you know so you cannot report on things uh, you cannot report on things with thought of no consequence for for doing that uh, Craig Murray, Julian Assange is paying paying the price. Um, I'm sure you know. Uh, uh, I can't remember her name now. I do apologise profusely to her family. The journalist uh, was bombed, uh, killed in a car bomb. You know, for 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 speaking out. So many journalists. Are, it's a very dangerous job for investigative journalists and people that that are reporting the truth to you are putting their lives on the line. 
I mean, at independent media, we we tend to get ridiculed, and um, if we get invited on to any mainstream media platform, it's so that they can denigrate us or disparage us. Uh, it's called it's called a use of neurolinguistics, and um, you know all the all the journalists now, all the presenters of these shows are all trained in neurolinguistics and how to how to position you, each show <clears throat> so that if you do happen to get a, a renegade um, a renegade person appearing on your on your show. Uh, such as I'm trying to think of her name now, the the Navara Media Girl, um, you know, Ash Sarkar, Ash Sarkar, declaring that she's actually a communist. <laughs> you know, when when they get those sort of people, Carrie Ann Mendoza, when she went on on certain programs, I won't name the programs, but the 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 uh, host on that show is a female, and she is just absolutely. Um, just so good at at making sure that everything that she says degrades what Kerry Ann says, and no platforms her, and puts her in a in a position where she has to be defensive, which of course comes across as aggressive when on the show. So yes, there's, it, it's everything that Rod said is is correct, and it's. How we get past that, I have no idea. Apart from support independent media, I, I think I think as coming from my point of view as a teacher, and I trained as part of my degree was in digital literacy and uh, literacy in media, um, and I, I think it is something that has disappeared from the school curriculum, and it's something that I think we should definitely be bringing back is to teach children um, as they're, they're coming into secondary school, how, how they can interpret the media um, through, uh, through the press, through the internet, through um, the television, um, how they can interpret and, and question critically what those stories are all about. Um, and I think, I feel very strongly that that should be brought back into schools. What's, what's your thoughts on that, Rod? Well, so oddly enough, I'd realised some time ago that people like Noam Chomsky have been writing critical material, not just of the media, but actually of war crimes, of the economic system and so on, for the last 50 or 60 years now. He's been doing it a long time. For the, for the last couple of decades, societies all over the world, particularly Britain and America, have been rapidly heading in the wrong direction, with inequality growing, more and more looking like a police state, um, companies getting away with ever more kind of criminal activity and so on, that actually writing for academia, as Noam Chomsky does, and writing for people who are already quite well informed and so on, only works up to a point. It's only when you can convince the vast majority of the population that we have to think differently, we have to change the way we do things, that we're ever going to get anywhere. So I've been thinking more and more that what I want to do is try and work out how we can get this material into schools and go and talk to them. So I, I actually um, started writing to teachers just the other day to see, I mean, at the moment it's kind of one at a time, but what I'd like eventually is to find a network of teachers, and it could be through a union, it could be through any other sort of type of organisation, where we can actually start saying, listen, we need to get every child thinking and questioning about information, about sources, and to be as critical of the mainstream media as at the moment they're being encouraged to be critical of fake news. And governments actually are trying to find different ways to introduce censorship for the IT systems in schools, where if a website is listed as fake news, then a child can't access it. But actually, yeah. look at the organizations that are listed as fake news, they're the ones that actually have the best reporting. They're the ones that challenge the mainstream. And in fact, we need to find our way of getting in and speaking to school children and saying, you've got to be just as questioning of the mainstream news, just as questioning of the government, just as questioning of big companies. So I entirely agree with that. And so if there's anybody out there who uh, is a teacher, an academic, who has any way of doing stuff in a school, then we need to get talking and find 
what we can do to uh, to get children to be more questioning. So I agree with you entirely. Yeah, fantastic. Well, I'd be up for helping to work on that, Rod. If you're uh, if you're going to sort something out, um, because that was you know something I was really interested in in teaching um, when I was a, a teacher. Uh, Lizzie, um, have we got any comments from the chat room this week? Well, I think everybody's been absolutely engrossed in in what. Sorry, have I got an echo? <laughs> everybody's absolutely engrossed in what Rod has been saying. Uh, people have been saying I could listen and learn from Rod all day and night. So, uh, what Rod does is he puts it in a way that anyone can pick it up pick up the subject and and come in at a stage where they can understand they perhaps don't know what a d notice is they don't know what what gchq stands for perhaps or mi5 but i'm sure they they do know what mi5 stands for but no matter what they they can come in and be a part of the conversation and you were talking about the literacy at school. Uh, it's critical thinking, isn't it? That's what we have to teach. And uh, Kerry-Ann Mendoza of the Canary was one that for years, for, for about four years, she really tried hard to introduce uh, a curriculum at Bristol schools to, to talk about this. You know, the fact that none of our children, unless you go to a private school or, or should I say a... Um, a, a, a grammar school i think uh, i don't think private schools aren't really easily accessible to any of us but grammar schools sometimes are accessible to any of us <clears throat> and um unless you go to a school like that you are no there's no way you're going to be encouraged to to think critically and um the, the teachers are inundated with curriculum data and box filling and uh, filling those boxes with with them with their own energies so that they're not able to teach free thinking they're not able to teach anything that these children are desperately going to need and I think with the onset of um, a lot of homeschooling and, and different kinds of schooling, you know, when the, um, I'm trying to think what they were called, academies, when the academies came into existence, that was private corporations owning the schools, right? So that's what, by any other name, that's what it was. It was businesses owning the education system and profiting from it, of course, as well, from the public purse. So, um, but with that came a, a sleuth of um, just independent educators. Um, and, and some of them have been going for, for many years. I'm trying to think of the name of one particular one that teaches teaches children how to garden as well as anything else. But um, this particular, well, that disconcerted me. I'm not used to being the single person on the screen. Thanks, Gaz. Um, the, the, the thing is that if you... With that came independent schooling and with that came, now we see this generation of, of young people who have a voice and they're willing to use it. They're willing to go to prison to shut Elbit down, you know, the arms factory. They're willing to go onto the streets of London and make everybody's, you know, um, mainstream media life uh you know, unbearable because they can't get on the tube because there's so many XR supporters sat on top of it, whatever. Um, you know, the young people now are, despite all the government attempts to shut them down and stop them thinking critically, are thinking critically and creatively, and they're coming up with their own solutions. And that's it. So there was an interesting um, point. I think I think you're you're right that that we, there is sort of hope in the younger generation, and uh, there was a point um, earlier about the private schools. There was an interesting thing that got some mainstream media coverage a few years back, where a group of boys from one of the top private schools. I can't remember if it was Eton or Westminster. I think it was Eton. They arranged their own trip to go and meet Vladimir Putin in Russia and so the strange thing is I often think about 
going into these schools because they do have you know more independence uh, and and probably it would be uh, easier to fit something in uh, just as a guest talk to start with but then perhaps something more complex but of course a great deal of what i would be saying is that to the to the students is that your parents are probably criminals and things like this that they are the senior executives in the banks and the weapons companies and the oil companies and that that might be a bit of a of a tricky one so I need yes to well their parents would actually their parents would know platform you rod <laughs> yeah you know they'd make sure you weren't invited or the invitation to speak was cancelled perhaps you never know so but i i had read other things along the line saying that if you interviewed the children of rich people 20 or 30 years ago, most of them thought that wealth and success were down to hard work and intelligence. Whereas if you interview the children of wealthy people now, they're actually a bit more aware of what's going on. They understand that the system is rigged in their favor and so on. So uh, it would be interesting to get more information on this and to start thinking about uh, all the different ways that, that it might be possible to... Uh, to talk to these these different groups because i i do think that the natural human mind of a child is intensely curious and unfortunately for whatever reason by the time these people are 21 they're not that curious and their natural curiosity has been forced out of them has been squashed whatever but i think if you can talk to young people they they really do want to understand the world so it's it's just a question of finding the ways and opportunities to uh, to do that. I think it's because it's it's thrown it's beaten out of them by the need to survive, in in most yeah. cases. I'm I'm sure that's uh, that's true. So um, it's, it's like it's like a sausage factory now. Education since the Tories came in in 2010, um, the Labour previous Labour Party had spent years talking to academics to teachers and um, so all sorts of people within education ken robinson who was a great um educator um in the creative curriculum and they'd they'd created this amazing curriculum around the creative curriculum and it was all around topic teaching it was about critical thinking etc and when the tories came in we got a message the very next day from michael gove saying put it in the bin and they, they'd already been delivered. We had them boxed, they were in the office ready to go and we got told to put them in the bin. And then that's when they changed the curriculum completely. Um, so that we, it was, you know, we, we had to be accountable. Everything had to be analyzed. We had data analysis meetings about the children. They became percentages and grades, not little people. And it's that system that's beaten the curiosity. It's one of the reasons why I'm not a teacher anymore. Um, it was absolutely hurting me not to be able to nurture the creativity and curiosity um, and the awe and wonder of the world around them um, that children have. Um, and yeah, the curriculum is it's just destroyed. It's absolutely destroyed education um on the kids anyway lizzie um just let's let's go back to the uh, the chat board was there, was there any questions or comments that you wanted to mention well there, there were james mc said this channel is 100 percent censored by the government after using my critical thinking skills and i would really i thought about answering him on the on the chat but then I thought, well, no, I think everybody needs to hear that actually, you know, Rod, Rod talks about Noam Chomsky. We all know him. We all know of him. We might not know him personally, but we know of him. And we've read and listened to him speak and we've we've read his stuff and we've seen his videos. But we're we're probably three percent of the country you know the other 97 percent of the country would be like who the hell's named chomsky so you know the thing is that we are censored completely censored there are 62 viewers on this uh, jeremy corbyn spoke the other night on a show and um i think there was something like 120 people viewing it so I mean, Jeremy Corbyn, when he goes to a when he goes to a place, he's he's surrounded by thousands of people, perhaps, you know. So we are censored. 
we used to have an audience on Unity News, on independent media of all kinds, not just Unity News, but the Canary. Um, Navarra Media and the Canary are actually quite different. They've they've gone into the capitalist arena, and they do have some standing there. They do have to censor themselves to have that standing though. Whereas we who refuse to censor ourselves um, do, have, have lost all of our audience really. Uh, we used to have audiences of 13 million and now we have, we're lucky if we get audiences of half a million now. So, you know, the really troubling aspect of all this is that it's, it's, decreasing all the time it's narrowing our window uh, is that down to big tech censoring people because there's many people i used to follow on youtube who have now had their youtube channels taken down they've been censored by yeah. paypal they can't have paypal accounts anymore um, and every channel they go to they're getting chucked off and um, so it's really difficult for people to get their information out there now well, and it, it's, it's, you know, since Facebook has, um, since they handed over control of their platform to the British government in, I think it was October or November last year. And uh, so who's the Lib Dem? Nick, Nick Clegg is in charge of our Facebook now. So, you know, that's why you shut down on Facebook, of course. Um, and like Rod said at the beginning of the show, these people wouldn't be in these positions of authority or in these jobs unless they already had these conformist beliefs or, or you know, it's not even conformist. They believe that they are free thinkers, don't they? You know, we all believe we're free thinkers. And if we try to come in come face to face with the bias that we have it ourselves each of us um well whoever we are whatever color nationality we are we all have these biases built in and it's if you try and confront those biases in yourself each day you could spend i would say every hour you would be confronting yourself about now why did i just think that why did i just say that when it's actually it's, it's pure hyperbole it's pure propaganda so i think the thing about biases is really interesting and actually earlier today i was just preparing for the next presentation that i'm going to be doing i think it may be next week if everything works out all right and that's going to be about psychology in particular why is it that propaganda is so effective and it's about why it's about people having biases but it's also about people feeling the need to fit in and to conform and to be obedient and, and things like this and uh, so i i hope it'll be uh, uh, it'll be a nice continuation of what we've been discussing over the last uh, couple of weeks yeah i've just had a comment now saying uh, what the canary have gone right right wing no it's it's not a matter of being left or right wing in fact that is a tool used to divide us you know because uh, as um trying to think of his name now he did secret socialist and uh he was a tory mp who went on the road and he came up with all jeremy corbyn's policies and he showed them to people without telling them where they came from and people all agreed because of course they're common sense policies whether you're left or right or, or whatever you are you think you are you're actually we're actually all of us socialists it's just that the rich people um want want to be as social they think everybody lives like them i think and those that don't it's because they choose to be lazy <laughs> okay well we're, we're just up to the hour now so i want to thank rod um, and lizzie for joining us this evening uh lizzie well, for doing you, the chat. and uh, and obviously your experience in the media has brought another side to this discussion that that uh, rod was talking about and i want to thank rod for joining us and uh, just to let you all know that we will be back next week with rod driver our resident academic for episode eight of elephant in the room please do support the channel uh, we've now got monetization which is brilliant i want to thank 
everybody who listens to the channel and shares it and who subscribed to us. Um, we've got 13, over 1,300 subscribers now to this channel which means that we've been able to now generate a little bit of income from it or hopefully we will do in the future um, which will go on to help us to bring better, bigger and better shows to you um, so thank you all once again and we'll see you next week